Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Wow, we got a new federal holiday. Juneteenth, you know, celebrating the actual, you can't really say the end of, well, I I suppose you could say the end, the the legal end of slavery or the last community that that realized that slavery had been ended more than two years earlier, this uh, in Galveston, Texas. And... You know, it's a fine thing. It's uh, it's over at the writing, T-H-E-R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G dot com. They've got all these headlines about, I'm not even going to repeat them, but just, you know, basically accusing even the Republicans who voted for this. You know, there there was a, a, a little more than a dozen Republicans who voted no, but even the Republicans who voted for Juneteenth of some kind of tokenism or whatever. But... What I think the real impact of this is, and I think it's going to be a really good thing, in the midst of this time when you've got state after state passing laws banning teachers from teaching the actual history of the Native American genocide and African slavery in this country, by this country, as as those laws are being passed... Juneteenth is going to provide a, you know, a teaching opportunity. And I see that as just a really, really good thing. Just, you know, just for example, I mean, this, this is how bad it is. This is in Virginia. This was posted by Kay Pete over on Democratic Underground. It's the first page of Chapter 29 of a seventh grade history textbook in Virginia. This now, now, they may not be using this textbook anymore. Uh, K. Pete says this is circa 1961. Actually, it links to a larger story that, yeah, polite racism that has this. <laughs> I, I just have to read this to you. This is just incredible. Early in Virginia's history, the General Assembly made laws closely controlling the Negroes. However, the laws were not fully enforced. Many slave masters did not like to have the state government meddle in what they considered their private business. They managed their servants according to their own methods. They knew the best way to control their slaves was to win their confidence and affection. A strong feeling of affection existed between masters and slaves in the majority of Virginia homes. The house servants became almost as much a part of the planter's family circle as its white members. The Negroes were always present at family weddings. They were allowed to look on at dances and other entertainments. A strong tie existed between slave and master because each was dependent. Life among the Negroes of Virginia in slavery times was generally happy. The Negroes went about in a cheerful manner, making a living for themselves and for those for whom they worked. But they were not worried by the furious arguments going on between Northerners and Southerners over what should be done with them. In fact, they paid little attention to these arguments. This is, this is what, you know, sixth, fifth graders, sixth graders were learning in Virginia in the 1960s. This whole uh, polite racism post over at uh, joantrumpbauermulholland.org slash polite-racism is really, 
remarkable. And as I said, there's, a, there's an easy link to it over at Democratic Underground. This is what a lot of white people in America grew up thinking was real. And thank God we're starting to wake up from it. And thank God we're starting to teach the real history of America. And thank God that, uh, or, you know, the gods or the goddess, that, that reality is setting in. Uh, by the way, on our program today, Lamar Waldron is going to be here. And we're going to do a deep dive today. And this is wildly ironic, given that Nixon's war on drugs was literally, as John Ehrlichman said, a war on black people. Anti-war hippies and black people. John Ehrlichman told a reporter back about 20 years ago that, uh, you know, we wanted to break up the anti-war movement and we wanted to break up the civil rights movement. And so we criminalized these drugs heavily. And then we used that as an excuse to invade their homes and break up their communities and cause chaos. And I'm paraphrasing. So today is also the 50th anniversary of Nixon declaring the war on drugs which has cost America billions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of lives and fallen massively disproportionately on people of color generally and the black community specifically. And Lamar has written an entire book about Nixon and his presidency, and so we're going to dig into that. Julia Rock is going to be with us with the Daily Poster newsletter, or actually it's becoming a news organization now about hiding the union busters. This is rather alarming. Dino Badal is going to be with us at the bottom of this hour. He's going to drop by. As a Muslim American, he has a special take on what we should be calling the uh, so-called insurrectionists on January 6th. We'll get into that a little bit. But the piece that I published over, or and, the piece that I published over at HartmanReport.com is titled, The Demise of Local Entrepreneurialism is the Death of the American Dream. And what we're seeing right now, there was this huge change in the American business landscape. In the article, I tell the story. You know, I've been an entrepreneur literally since I was 17 years old. In fact, when I was seven years old, my dad, who worked in a tool and die shop, he and his best friend, Jerry Miller, tried to start a vitamin company. They called it Millhart Laboratories. They were selling them through the mail. They took out little ads in newspapers around the country. And I remember, seven years old, sitting in my dad's basement, filling vitamin bottles from this giant bag of giant brown pills, these horse pills, you know, that dad and Jerry thought was going to, you know, build them a little business. They lost their shirts on that, but I was watching. And I learned how to be an entrepreneur from my dad's failure. And the first business I started was when I was 17. And uh, that business failed after we built it up to five employees, and, but then I tried to grow it too fast and got caught in a debt trap, and that was the end of that. But, you know, since then we've started nine businesses, and we've had, you know, four of them that were quite successful. That's how it used to be in America. We used to have small businesses all over this country. We used to have local banks. We used to have local clothing stores. We used to have local furniture stores. We used to have local gift stores. We used to have local travel agencies. We used to have local everything. You know, Route 66, this uh, TV show that came out in the early 60s, was about Marty Milner and uh, George Maharis traveling across the country, hitting little towns all the way. And, and you always knew what town they were in because the name of the town was on half the businesses. Oh, it's the Peoria Bank. Well, now, if you were to jump out of an airplane, you know, with a parachute from a couple miles up and land in any random city in America, what would you see? The hotels would be Marriott and Hyatt. The banks would be Wells Fargo and Bank of America. You would have no friggin' idea. You know, the restaurants would be uh, Ruby Tuesdays and Olive Garden and McDonald. You'd have no friggin' idea where you were. And here's what's so deadly about this. Used to be with your local businesses, when, I, you know, when Louise and I ran local businesses, we had a travel agency in Atlanta, we had an advertising agency in Atlanta, we had an herbal tea company in Michigan, I could go on. But in any case, when we used to run local businesses, at the end of the day, you put your money from the revenue from that day in the local bank. And the local bank then loans that money to people to buy houses or loans it to other small businesses to start their businesses. Our first business, we had a $3,000 bank loan. It was the thing that caught us in the end, but there it was. So the money stayed local, and it built the local economy. It's why small-town America was vibrant before Reagan. In 1983, Reagan explicitly stopped enforcing the antitrust laws. 
And no president since then has gone back to enforcing them, although the Biden administration is talking about that right now. As a result, we've got this American business landscape that is like a giant, just imagine a giant space alien that looks like an octopus that has come down and landed on America and put out its tentacles all across the country. And in every town in America, it is sucking up all the cash and keeping it. Because at the end of the day, the local Walmart, which has replaced 120 local businesses, the local Walmart doesn't put that money in the local bank. They push a button and that money goes to Bentonville, Arkansas never to be seen again by the local community. And this is why local communities across America have been devastated. I wrote an entire book about this, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, how it happened, who who the culprits were, and what we can do about it. And now that the Biden administration is pushing this Build Back Better program, and they're very serious about that. You've got, you know, Bernie and a bunch of progressive Democrats in the Senate. You know, they're trying to put together a $6 trillion piece of legislation that they're going to push through by reconciliation. And there's a chance. And if the Biden administration wants, is dead serious, if they're really serious about building back better and making America once again the kind of landscape, the kind of business landscape where you could start your own business You can build it up. You don't have to be worried about being squashed like a bug by a giant corporation. You can keep it in your family or as I've sold three of my companies to my own employees. I mean, you know, this is how it used to be in America. And if we want that back, we can get that by just breaking up these giant monopolies. It should be part of the Build Back Better program, of Biden's Build Back Better program. And so uh, thus my rant. Yeah, you know, there's a longer piece that you can read over at Harbin Report about that. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's your media support group for we the people of America, those of us who believe in democracy. On the line with us is journalist with the Daily Poster, David Sroda's publication, dailyposter.com. Julia Rock. Julia's uh, Twitter handle is J-U-L-1-A Rock, or at Daily Poster. And Julia, welcome to the program. Tell me about hiding the union busters. Thanks so much for having me. So I wrote a story this week about provision of the Protecting the Right to Organize Act called the Persuader Rule, which was part of the Biden campaign's initial platform on labor reform as well. This is the PRO Act you're talking about. The PRO Act, yep. And that's a rule that would require... Forgive the interruption, which has not been passed. Just I'm concerned about people being confused about not, you know. Exactly, yes. It has 47 co-sponsors in the Senate right now. Forgive my interruptions, Um, Julia. Go for it. No worries. And the persuader rule would require corporations to disclose expenditures during union drives on consulting services or legal services pertaining usually to union busting. Um, So right now, during a union drive, corporations are required to disclose when they pay consultants or law firms to interact directly with employees um, and talk to them about unionizing, but they're not required to disclose expenditures on indirect communication. So that might be, you know, a consulting firm putting together flyers about union dues, or it might be um, a law firm advising an employer on how it can talk to employees about unions. And this was a story about the legal industry's efforts to make sure that the persuader rule isn't passed, either through the PRO Act or through executive order. So the American Bar Association has long opposed the persuader rule and lobbied against efforts to pass it either through legislation or executive order. So basically, there's a a little mini industry within the legal profession, and I shouldn't say a little mini industry. This is a multi-billion dollar a year industry of union busting, and the American Bar Association is trying to protect this. Obviously, you know, if you look at, in fact, I I thought one of the most fascinating parts of your article was, you know, what Amazon did. You want to fill us in on that? Yeah, so... During the Amazon union election in Alabama, the company had kind of a remarkable set of tactics to prevent 
workers from or to encourage workers to vote against the union, which included like multiple text messages a day that the company was sending to workers about, you know, why the union would be bad for them, mailers that were being sent to the employees, um, bonuses they offered to employees to quit before the election happened. And presumably there were, you know, big law firms or consulting firms that were kind of advising Amazon on how to do this. Like you said, there are hundreds of million dollars a year that these law firms and consultants make in the business of advising on union busting. But we don't really know who was coordinating those efforts. Amazon was required to make some disclosures, again, about those firms that were interacting directly with employees, but we really have no way of knowing who was behind the scenes. And obviously, you know, that was a historic union busting effort that got a lot of public attention, but the firms that were advising Amazon on it were able to, you know, keep themselves secret because this rule is not in place. Right. And they were successful ultimately, which is, you know, all the more the tragedy. What are the rules around, right, the current rules around if a corporation just brings all this in-house? I mean, Amazon has, well, actually, I don't know for a fact that Amazon has an in-house legal department. I'd be astonished if a company that size didn't. If they just do these things in-house, how is that regulated? Yeah, so it's not my understanding that this rule would apply to that. I do think, though, there are you know, a lot of these big firms. You've probably heard some of the names like Ogletree Deacons, Morgan Lewis, that really are known for their what they brand as their union avoidance services are typically brought on to help coordinate these campaigns. So there's not kind of a requirement, you know, if Amazon is paying its own lawyers to do this. But, mm-hmm. but if they are bringing on these outside firms, then that is when this rule would be triggered. So we're talking with Julia Rock, a journalist with The Daily Poster, dailyposter.com. You started pointing out that the Biden administration campaigned on the PRO Act. This is, you know, the, this legislation that would strengthen the right of unions to unionize and the right of people who want to have a union to get it. Where is the Biden administration on this right now? Where is Congress at on this right now? Yeah, so this rule in particular, which is part of the proactive persuader rule, is something that Biden could institute through executive order and has not done so yet. In terms of the PRO Act, the Biden administration has said it you know, supports the legislation, but that's not super meaningful. As I mean, it's not really meaningful at all as long as the filibuster is in place because there's not the support of 60 senators. I'd mentioned before, 47 Democratic senators currently support the PRO Act. There are a few holdouts. Still who are the three who Democrats. don't? It's the two Arizona senators and then Mark Warner from Virginia. Oh, is that weird? I was expecting you to say Joe Manchin. I get Kirsten Cinema, Mark Warner from Virginia. Okay, I don't know very much about him. I'm, I guess I'm surprised by that. And Mark Kelly from Arizona? Yes. Yep. Why would why, why would a guy who campaigned as a well, I'm not sure he campaigned as a progressive. I mean, you know, I, I suppose guns was a big issue for him because his wife is Gabby Giffords. But have any of those three offered any rationale for their failure to support the PRO Act or have any of them, for that matter, come right out and said that they're opposed to it? I don't know exactly what their public statements have been on the issue. I do know that all three of them, there's a pretty massive campaign right now from the Democratic Socialists of America and a couple of labor unions to, you know, put the pressure on these three senators and and get them to flip. And I think that pressure was what got uh, Senator Joe Manchin to flip. So I do mm-hmm. know that they're under a lot of pressure, both from the left and from labor unions. But well, the mine I, I don't know what their public statements have been. Yeah, the Mine Workers Union in West Virginia is a major power in that state uh, politically. Right. And uh, particularly in Democratic politics. And so it makes sense that Joe Manchin would sit up and take notice. Apparently, you know, if you think about Arizona, I've never thought of Arizona as a heavily unionized state. There's not a lot of manufacturing there, Uh, you know, construction, banking, insurance, some agriculture. So you can see where there wouldn't probably be a large union constituency. And Arizona has historically been a very conservative state. I mean, very Goldwater came out of Arizona. What's the deal with Mark Warner in Virginia? You know, I don't know exactly what his reasoning is right now for holding out on the PRO Act. Yeah, remarkable. And so what can average Americans, uh, you know, what can we do to encourage Congress to pass the PRO Act? Or just to this smaller and arguably finer point that you're making about, you know, what Joe Manchin could do by executive order. What can we do to try to advance this process? Yeah, so the DSA coalition with 
national labor unions that I'd mentioned before that is working on the PRO Act, I think has been really effective so far and is definitely worth plugging into. I think that campaign reached one million calls they had made um, wow. in their phone banking efforts sometime last week. So I think that's probably the best option for plugging in to push the PRO Act forward. So, get these, these and and forgive me for not remembering, is there a link to that in your article? No, I don't think there is, but we have covered the DSA Pro Act campaign previously at the Daily Poster. Um, so people and there could is just, a link in that article. Yeah, yep. people could just plug it into a search engine and check it out and find out how it works. That's great. Julia Rock, you're doing great great work there at the Daily Poster, uh, dailyposter.com. Thanks so much for dropping by today. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, and very nice meeting you. The Tom Hartman Program Talk Media for the sane among us. Yes, there are some of us still here. <laughs> It's the place where smart people get their news. Stick around. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Jessica in Chicago. Hey, Jessica, what's up? Hi, Tom. January 6th, special prosecutor is still the best way to deal with the traitors in our government. They didn't vote on that commission because they are part of the treasonous insurrection. And if it wasn't for them being idiots and incompetent, Trump would be ruling and then his idiot kids. So Trump doesn't, you know, here's the funny part. When Trump said he was watching it at the White House and he said he's watching everything on involving it, the Capitol, and then he said, oh, he, he complained, they, they're dressed awful. They just, they're old and they're out of shape. He didn't even like his own base. Really? So, I didn't, where, where did oh. you see that reporting? I didn't know. You know, oh. he's complaining that it was boomers and uh, Gen oh, Xers yes. who were attacking the Capitol? Yes, he, he always insults people. He insulted his own face. He was saying how he couldn't stand how they were dressed and how yeah, they, they looked like they were out of shape when he, he's sitting there watching. And As he's I eating believe, a, a McDonald's cheeseburger and sipping his Diet Coke, right. Yes, and so some of those Oath Keepers and the One Percenters, they're going to turn evidence. And leading up to the insurrection, the Pollard website was actually being incredibly responsible. Oh, they notified the FBI 50 times yeah. that violence was coming to the Capitol building. And the yeah. FBI was like, uh, duh, 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 sorry, uh, we're all Trump appointees here in the senior administration now, it's, uh, so uh, it's all good. And I think that FBI Ray needs to be fired for incompetence or in handcuffs for being a traitor. I think he might be in on it, too, along with those Flynn brothers. And it's insane um, because, yeah. oh, I just... I, I, I don't think that Chris Ray was in on it, but he, he certainly was turning a blind eye to what was going on in the FBI when he was oh, running it. Oh. And he should not one, be in that position right now. One of the power posts called for a 150,000 people to wear body armor and be ready for war. Amazing. Well, they were. I mean, the fourth guy carrying a semi-automatic weapon into the Capitol building was charged four of them now with semi-automatic weapons. Jessica, thank you for the call. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Up next, my SiriusXM colleague, Dean Obadale. He's got a special word for the traitors who attacked the Capitol. My buddy and colleague from SiriusXM's Progress Channel, uh, Dean Obadala. 
And uh, Dean, welcome back to the program. You, as a Muslim American, have a mm-hmm. unique perspective on the meaning and consequences of the use of the word terrorism. You wrote a brilliant op-ed about this for MSNBC uh, yesterday or the day before. Tell us about it. Sure, Tom. Thanks for having me on. It's always great to chat with you, and thanks for being on my show earlier this week. I wrote an article for MSNBC based on FBI Director Christopher Wray's testimony on Tuesday and also in March. He said the FBI views January 6th as an act of, quote, domestic terrorism, close quotes. And that's not his gut opinion. He's not a talk show host or a pundit. He's looking at the federal law, which defines domestic terrorism as using violence, unlawful violence, to intimidate or coerce public policy or change government. So it's essentially violence that has a political goal. That's how the FBI use it. They don't use the word insurrection. We can use it if we want. But to me, insurrection is more this intellectual word. It might be correct. It might not be. But it's giving the GOP a chance to debate what's an insurrection, what's not. It's a very 18th century word, too. Right. Terrorism has a visceral reaction. We know. I know it. As someone who's, as a Muslim American, where we were, why don't we denounce terrorism? And are we soft on terrorism? Are we supporting the terrorists? All this garbage. Well, this January 6th, it's not me as Dean the Pundit or host saying it. The FBI director said it was an act of domestic terrorism. I think we should frame it that way. I think Democrats should. I think people in the media should. That this was an act of terrorism. And ask the Republicans the same question George Bush asked after 9-11. You're either with us or you're with the terrorists. And let them, let them downplay a terrorist attack. Frame it that way. Let them say, oh, they weren't all bad terrorists. You're still within our frame, which is the accurate frame. It's not hyperbolic. It is based on the FBI director. So my point is, January 6th was an act of domestic terrorism under federal law. It's undeniable. We should be using that. If you want to add insurrection as well, I get it. That's fine. But terrorism moves people. And let the GOP defend the terrorists like Ashley Babbitt and the others. Everyone involved in an act of terrorism is a terrorist. This is two plus two equals four stuff. This is what's going on. We have the GOP literally defending an act of terrorism against the United States, which was, I say January 6th was far more dangerous to our democracy than 9-11. I mean, yeah. different in terms of people being killed, of course, and destruction, far worse than 9-11. But that was not going to overturn our democracy. January 6th, its goal was to destroy our democracy. That wasn't right. a goal. Yeah, it's a, it's a genuine act of terrorism. And, and, and uh, you know, I recall... Uh, during the during the uh, uh, protests over the murder of George Floyd, uh, a Fox News pundit, and I'm, I'm straining to remember who it was. Uh, Louise and I occasionally pop over there, and it's it's in the evening, you know. So it was one of the one of the uh, primetime ga- guys uh, was using the word terrorist to describe Black Lives Matter protesters. Um, there is no doubt in my mind. I you know I wrote an op-ed, and you and I talked about this on your program uh, mm-hmm. earlier in the week, as I recall. Um, I wrote an op-ed saying that we need to start using the word corrupt as a, mm-hmm. a predicating adjective every single time we use the word Republican. Uh, you know, the corrupt Republican so-and-so or the corrupt Kevin McCarthy or the corrupt uh, GOP or the, you know. And, and, and you, I mean, this is how Republicans would be playing it if the, if the shoe was on the other foot. If the Democratic Party was as corrupt and in the bag with these giant corporations and, and, and whatnot as the Republican Party is, um, they would be calling them corrupt. And similarly, if, uh, you know, if, if it had been Democratic constituents who had attacked the Capitol on January 6th, you can bet your ass that they would be calling them terrorists. I mean, they, you bet your bottom dollar. I mean, they, they, there is no doubt about it. And, and so, I, you know, I'll start doing that, Dean. You're going to obviously right. start doing that on your I'll show on Sirius XM. We've, but I think we've got to also you know, encourage our listeners to start leaning on the rest of the media to use the word that the friggin' FBI is using, terrorism, to describe what happened on January 6th instead of, you know, riot or insurrection or anything else, a terrorist act. Right. It wasn't a riot. A riot sounds more organic. But, Tom, what we're both talking about is framing, and it's something Republicans have done really well for a long time. And Democrats... If they do well, it was an accident, I can assure you. It was not by design. Like, they stumbled on it and it actually worked, and people repeated it. And like, wow, that was great. We, framing is so important. It doesn't win every argument, but it helps you. It gives you an advantage. And if you keep people debating within the frame we create, it helps us. So if you have them going, we're not that corrupt, well, that's not going to help them. But you've got them saying corrupt. And in this case, 
look, this is not me saying it was an act of domestic terrorism. It was the FBI director. He's yeah. testified more than once about it. If you look at the federal law, it's very clear it was an act of terrorism. Donald Trump incited an act of terrorism. That Donald Trump is, in my view, hence a terrorist. And we have Sean Hannity celebrating him two days ago on, on you know, Fox News and Republicans celebrating them. I guess too bad they can't find people in the Bin Laden family to have on. Actually, they did. To be on Yesterday, oh, they had, like, you know, in, in uh, three days ago in Geneva, Switzerland, on Lake Geneva, Osama Bin Laden's niece, I think her name is Noor Bin Laden, was uh, riding around in a boat just off, you know, right off the shore of this resort, this this castle resort where they were holding the meeting. Wearing, uh, carrying this giant flag that said Trump won. Well, I mean, Honest to God. You, know, you can judge uh, Trump by his fans, I think, a little bit there. Yeah. And it's remarkable to see even polling showing more Republicans have a positive view of Putin over Joe Biden. But that makes sense because Trumpism at its core is a, re- is a hatred of democracy, rejection of democratic norms. Yes. It's an embrace of authoritarianism. authoritarianism. Yeah, exactly. And cruelty. So yes. they would like someone like Putin where his... His political enemies are dead or in jail. I think some of the GOP would be on board with that, and that's kind of frightening, but that's where we stand right now. Yeah. In January, yeah. you know, as FBI director and Merrick Garland on Tuesday gave a speech saying there's an elevated risk of domestic terrorism in the two places it comes from, militia groups and white supremacists. That's who attacked us on January 6th. They're still out there. They're part of the GOP. They're absolutely, and they've, they've completely aligned themselves with the Republican Party, and the Republican Party has completely aligned itself with them. It's, it's bizarre. Dean Obadala, the, the great, the, the dean of radio, deanofradio.com. Yeah. Uh, the great Dean Obadala. Thanks for dropping by, Dean. It's great talking with you. Nice, same as here. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, have a good one. Have a great one. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. You can catch, by the way, Dean's show, I think it's 7 o'clock at night, something like that, on Sirius XM. It's in the evening, Eastern Time. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Today is the 50th anniversary of Nixon's war on drugs, which has cost America trillions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of American lives lost or destroyed. And uh, for that anniversary, on that anniversary, we have with us my old buddy, Lamar Waldron. And Lamar and I worked on a couple of books together. But his book, apropos of all this, his, his most recent book, Watergate, The Hidden History, Nixon, the Mafia, and the CIA. Lamar, welcome back. Let's just get right into this. Nixon declared the war on drugs. Why 50 years ago today? Well, the main reason was that the newspapers were in television news were full of reports that a a large percentage of the troops in Vietnam were coming home addicted Revisionists had had lowered those several years back. And so, Lamar, you were telling us that uh, Nixon declared the war on drugs 50 years ago today, in part because 10 to 20 percent of the Americans coming back from Vietnam were coming back as heroin addicts, and heroin addiction thus was spreading across the country and getting all kinds of publicity. Where do we go from there? And that's exactly right. Two important points to note, though. One is, in Nixon's first year in office, after he, he, he stole the 68 election, uh, many people would say, by committing treason, he had had the military crack down on marijuana use in Vietnam. So there was a bizarre situation where, in many cases, it was easier for a soldier over there to get heroin to help him relax than it was to get marijuana, which is just ridiculous, you know, that they cracked down on marijuana like that. The other thing being, the reason it was so easy to get heroin over there was because it was being sold through the government-funded service clubs where these soldiers would go for their, their R&R, their Wait, rest, uh, recreation. Uh, not officially. Well, uh, it, it, that was another scandal that, 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 that started uh, raising up, and it was called the service club scandal. Now, it wasn't, yeah, I mean, it wasn't officially like, oh, give me a Coke and, and some smack. You know, it wasn't like that, but it was so incredibly widespread that that became its own scandal. So you might wonder why or how, you know, would, 
would heroin be sold so readily in service clubs throughout Vietnam and the adjacent countries like Thailand and stuff? Well, the guy who, who handled getting the heroin into those service clubs worked for the number one godfather that, 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 that Richard Nixon had a relationship with at that time, a guy by the name of Santo Traficante. Oh, my God, the guy who ordered the hit on John Kennedy. Well, who admitted he ordered the hit on John Kennedy and whose father created what, what your older listeners like you and I will remember, something called the French Connection. And the French Connection was, was how the heroin was trafficked from the Middle East and, and then through France and Marseille and, and then into the United States, sometimes smuggled on cars and stuff like that. Yeah. And so, I mean, so Traficante had been a big supporter of Richard Nixon since the 1960 election when Traficante and his heroin partner in Louisiana, Texas, and Mississippi named Carlos Marcello, they gave Nixon in the 60 campaign a million-dollar bribe, basically, to, to keep Hoffa out of prison to help Nixon get elected because Nixon was like the mafia's guy. The mafia had free reign in the United States and Cuba in the 50s. The Kennedys... When, when Nixon was vice president. Right. When Nixon was vice president, Eisenhower, who wasn't in the greatest health, especially the latter part of his term, was the president. And, you know, and it was only Senator John F. Kennedy and his brother Robert Kennedy, who helped to spearhead these Senate hearings, that got any attention all in, in, on the mafia and on particular people like Santo Traficante, Carlos Marcello, and Jimmy Hoffa in the late 50s. That's how JFK you know, became a presidential candidate. So Traficante had a long tie-in with Nixon. Part of that deal in 60 involved the CIA mafia plots to assassinate Fidel Castro right before the election. So it's like a package deal. So Nixon had been working with Traficante then. At the very time he's declaring war on drugs, Two things Nixon is up to. One, he's negotiating another million-dollar bribe from Santo Traficante and Carlos Marcel. This was all confirmed by Time magazine several years after the events. And that would be to release Jimmy Hoffa from prison but not let him resume control of the Teamsters, because Hoffa was a powerful figure, right? right? And Traficante and Marcello and the other mobsters, they liked the guy that uh, Frank Fitzsimmons, who was like a pushover compared to Jimmy Hoffa. So they didn't want Hoffa Which is why they banished the him. Teamsters. So there was a million-dollar bribe being negotiated. And, and, and here's the worst part of all. I mean, this, this just puts Nixon up in the pantheon and may make him worse than Trump. Only history will tell. Alexander Haig became Nixon's last chief of staff, General Alexander Haig, later Secretary of State, if you recall, under Ronald Reagan. Alexander Haig, you know, was a conservative guy, right? He was a military, career military guy. He discovered that Richard Nixon was getting regular, pretty much monthly briefcases full of cash from Southeast Asia that were originating with the people working with Traficante, trafficking the heroin through the service club. And Haig didn't want to believe that. So he went to what I believe, and, and your, your veteran listeners will know this better than I, I think it was called back then something like the, the Criminal Investigative Service or something like that with the Army. It was there in CIS, basically. Right. And Alexander Haig, who was Nixon's last chief of staff, but he was also still a general, you know, he was able to get someone assigned to him to basically follow the guy who was bringing these monthly briefcases full of cash to Nixon to follow that guy back and then follow him back to the U.S. And so he literally, Alexander Haig, was able to, to confirm this. Now, the problem for your listeners is that most of them have never heard this. So why haven't they heard it? Well, it was literally front-page news in a lot of major American newspapers two years and four months after Nixon's resignation. Hmm. And people who didn't live through it, like you and I did, I mean, people were so tired of Nixon and Watergate, just like people are tired of Trump, Trump in many ways. You know, after all that stuff, they just wanted to move on. So Amazing. So, well, Lamar, that, can you stick around? Story. 
Sure, sure. Lamar Waldron is with us. If you want to get the real story, get his book, Watergate, The Hidden History, Nixon, the, uh, the Mafia, and the CIA. We'll be right back. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. .edu/podcast Mark Waldron on the line with us. He's the author of Watergate: The Hidden History. So we've got Richard Nixon involved with Traficante and Marcello who were running heroin into Vietnam and addicting 10 to 20% of our US returning service members in 1971. And then Traficante and Marcello sending literally suitcases full of money every month to the White House, to Richard Nixon, to keep this thing going. Al Haig, Nixon's chief of staff, the, the, the general, finding out about it and freaking out. What next? From there to the actual declaration 50 years ago today, and by the way, 50 years ago yesterday was the anniversary of the Watergate break-in, the principal title of your book, Watergate, The Hidden History. Which, by the way, occurred almost exactly a year after Nixon declared the war on drugs. I mean, that, that was one busy year. Yes. So where do we go from Nixon's in the White House, he's getting bribes from these two mafia godfathers who are running heroin into Southeast Asia, specifically to sell it through the service clubs to American GIs, which is producing 20% of returning GIs being addicted to heroin, which is producing a heroin epidemic in the United States that presumably Traficante and Marcello are more than happy to, to meet the need of. Where do we go from that point that you've so well established to his declaration of the war on drugs and the actual implementation of it and John Ehrlichman's later comments about it? Well, of course, in 71, when he makes that de- declaration in June, Nixon was the kind of guy who was always running for re-election. I mean, he literally always was running. So he's got his eye on the 72 election then. And as one of his two top aides, there were Haldeman and Ehrlichman, John Ehrlichman, told a journalist in 1994, he said that the Nixon White House, after Nixon got in, had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. Now, that's a quote. Okay, I'm reading you the quote right now. And he, he told this journalist in 1994, you understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or blacks, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities, close quote, because they weren't going to vote for Nixon anyway. Right. So... That, that incredible amount of racism, because, of course, Nixon was able to steal the 68 election. He got it close enough so his treason worked by using racism, using what what's, was called then and is called now the Southern strategy, which is now the de facto way that, that Republicans gin up votes. It's basically racism. all the GOP has anymore. Well, that's exactly I mean, we right. saw this with Roy Blunt when he came out and said, it's not the Joe Manchin compromise anymore, it's the Stacey Abrams. It's like, come on, you know, racist much, Senator Blunt? Anyhow, back to you, Lamar, sorry. But, but again, remember, it worked for Nixon in 68, and Nixon, even though the 72 election was more than four months after the Watergate arrest that 
we're front page news in every major you know, daily newspaper in the country, right? So it wasn't like people didn't know that Watergate happened. People knew it happened. They knew people involved with the White House were arrested for it. I mean, it was just pretty clear who benefited. And yet, Nixon won the 72 election in a massive landslide. So, yeah, Republicans are using the same tricks that Nixon used in the 72 election and the 68 election, but he got 68 close enough to steal, and he won 72 overwhelming. So your listeners should kind of keep that in mind. But I have to say, it actually gets worse. So he's using racism and this war on drugs basically as a political tool to help him get reelected, in addition to you know, the plumbers, who, who were one of several groups he had that were doing all sorts of felonies and break-ins. and I mean, it was just a massive criminal enterprise, the whole Nixon administration, which is why 60 people were indicted or convicted or pled guilty, and, and two of his attorneys general would be convicted, one would go to prison. So, but it actually gets worse than all this, okay? It actually gets worse. So let's zip through Watergate and get right up to Nixon being pressured to resign. I think there's a very good case to be made that Al Haig's knowledge of the secret monthly bribes from the heroin trafficking to our servicemen and, and, and women in Southeast Asia, I think that Al Haig was able to use that, and I outlined the circumstantial case, to get Nixon to resign and to forge that, that deal for a pardon. Because Nixon knew he needed that pardon. I, I think the deal was cut for the pardon even before, and there was circumstantial evidence to back it up. So, And get this, Nixon was, when he was debating whether or not to resign, he hadn't decided yet in, in July of 74. And so when he was debating whether or not to resign, and resisting it, by the way, he was looking at spending millions of dollars of taxpayers' money to refurbish a big Florida mansion to serve as a better winter White House for him. And that big Florida mansion was called Mar-a-Lago. Oh, my God. So, I mean, the parallels to Trump are just ridiculous. But well, so, Roger Stone was in tight with Nixon at that point in time, as was Roy Cohn. And those two guys have been with Trump, you know, throughout his political career. Well, well Roy and, Cohn and is fact, dead, but and, Roy Cohn and, and was and his fact, lawyer. Nixon was the first person to predict that Donald Trump would be president one day, because Roger Stone introduced Nixon to Donald Trump. I think it was around 1980. Trump was using Roy Cohn, was literally Trump's number one mentor. I mean, Trump admits that. So this festering disease from that war on drugs. It just keeps cropping up, and it would crop up again in the 80s. But even before we get to that, there were murders involved in all of this. So, uh, remember Say I said, what? there were murders involved <laughs> yeah. in all of this. So, remember, Nixon's ties to Traficanti go back to 1960s. Nixon's ties to the Mafia go back to his first run for Congress back in 1946 with the L.A. Mafia and Mickey Cohen. But his ties to Traficanti go back to 1960 and that election and the CIA Mafia plots and that involved Marcello and, and a Chicago mob boss, not a godfather, by the name of Sam Giancana and Giancana's man in uh, Hollywood and Las Vegas by the name of Johnny Roselli. Well, after Nixon finally resigns and he gets his pardon, uh, Congress finally gets wind of the CIA mafia plots, and they're starting to dig into it. Uh, These are plots to kill Castro. Right, to kill Castro. Senator by the name of Frank Church, and, and, and on his committee is Gary Hart, and, and so and Richard Swiker. And so, yeah, they're starting to dig into this, and they're subpoenaing people like Sam Giancana and Johnny Roselli, to testify. And by the way, Jimmy Hoffa had a small role in those plots as well, and we've talked about the big bribes, the, the two different million-dollar bribes about Hoffa. So, and they're talking about subpoenaing Hoffa as well. Well, guess what happens to Sam Giancana before he can testify? He's murdered in a hit that's connected to Santo Traficanti. Johnny wrote, and, and then, and then uh, just a matter of weeks, after Sam Giancana is murdered, and, this, and that was, boy, that was front-page news across America, uh, because most people had just found out about the CIA mafia plots. And then uh, Jimmy Hoffa disappears 
before he can testify, and his disappearance is linked to Santo Traficante. And then after Johnny Roselli has very carefully testified and tried to avoid angering uh, 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 Santo Traficante and Marcello, but eventually he just keeps getting dragged back before that committee for for secret testimony. But it's you know it's it's known it's in it's you know in executive session the mm-hmm. same way that uh, that um, uh, Trump's uh, White House attorney uh, Don McGahn, uh, yeah, yeah, the way he just testified. So so you know he testified just you know it wasn't on TV, and so Johnny Roselli. You know, he he vanishes right after a meeting, uh, just within days of his last meeting with Santo Traficati, and then his body, this the Senate witness, I think he's one of the first Senate witnesses ever murdered, is found, you know, floating, dismembered and floating in a 55-gallon oil drum. And so that even has an effect. Now, that does have an effect on Richard Nixon. Hmm. So a year after Nixon had resigned and flown off in his helicopter and stuff like that, Nixon finally reemerges from seclusion in a very public way at a, at a golf tournament in Southern California where Nixon is playing golf with the two top suspects in Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance. And this is just within a couple of months after Hoffa was murdered. So, you know, yeah, did Nixon love the money he was getting from Traficante for all the heroin and all the drugs? Sure. But he he knew what Traficante was capable of. You know, I, I, I don't think he knew details, but I think he knew that. So Nixon Marcello thought his life was at risk if he if he if he squealed, basically. Exactly. So so you know, you make nice by playing golf with these two close associates of Santo Traficante in public at this this golf course. And I tell you, you know, when you read like the New York Times article about that golf tournament or Stephen Ambrose wrote this, this, you know, mostly pretty good, except he left out a lot of the mafia, three volume uh, biography of Nixon. When you read the Times or uh, the Ambrose three volume biography of Nixon, it just like comes out of the blue. It's like it makes it's like, you know, and it didn't really penetrate the national consciousness because it was just so bizarre. Right. You know, why would Nixon? But but you're exactly right. He didn't want to get killed. He wanted to show he was going to keep his mouth shut and and play nice. And and he did. So Nixon had a guy had a Nixon's best friend was a mafia associate named Bibi Rebozo who had a little private bank down in Miami that basically only serviced, you know, mafia-type people, and, and they did business with Switzerland. So while Nixon was president, all this illicit money was held and laundered by the mob associate best friend of Nixon, Bibi Rebozo. And then after Nixon is no longer president, and, and you know, he's kind of away from that spotlight, uh, a guy that you and I know, a good investigative journalist uh, in many ways by the name of Anthony Summers, was able to document that Nixon started making annual trips to Switzerland to go check on his money at the Swiss bank. Whoa. So, you know, Mark, Nixon, can, can you stick around Nixon, for, for a few more minutes? Sure, sure. Okay. There, there's some more great stuff to tell you. Okay. We will be back with Lamar Walder and his book. Watergate, The Hidden History, Nixon, the Mafia, and the CIA. So, Lamar, keep going. So, so by the end of the 70s, Nixon's in great shape. He's living in that incredible spread overlooking the Pacific Ocean. You know, he's got his money that, that his best friend had kept for him. He, he stayed out of jail. He, you know, he's seen a, a new Republican president get elected and vice president. and Reagan. and Right, and, and Bush. And so, you know, he's looking pretty good. But, you know, I think it, it's really important to note a lot of your listeners, I hope, are aware of something called the cocaine-contra scandal, part of the Iran-contra scandal of the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And that was where the uh, uh, death squads that Reagan and Bush were backing down in Nicaragua and Central America and El Salvador were 
basically raising money and making money on the side by smuggling drugs. And so, in many ways, what Nixon did in the early 70s with his drug deals, with Traficanti, I think really laid the groundwork for what happened with the CIA-sanctioned drug dealing in the mid-'80s because a lot of the Cuban exiles who were involved in those activities had literally worked for Nixon and his campaign and his dirty tricks operation. All right, and let's be very clear. The, 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 the Nixon mafia CIA plots to assassinate Castro had one main purpose, which was to reinstall the mafia back in charge of the island of Cuba. Exactly, exactly right. Well, to, to make you know, to make Nixon president because we'd have U.S. troops fighting in Cuba, and you know, who's going to vote for that young, inexperienced JFK? You know, right. when you had this eight-year vice president, and you're exactly right. It would put the mafia back in charge with their specifically Traficante. Right. And, yeah, he was, he was the biggest casino owner in Cuba once they ran out Meyer Lansky. But many of the Cuban exiles involved, and some of the CIA agents involved in the Iran-Contra affair and the cocaine smuggling aspects of it, trace, they trace all the way back to the same mafia plots and also were involved with Nixon's dirty tricks and, and I hate to call them dirty tricks teams, you know, during the Watergate era, his, his, his political felonies teams. Right. And so, you know, when these things don't get exposed enough, you know, and dragged out into the sunlight, these things just keep coming up and coming up. So Nixon and everything he did with his phony war on drugs laid that groundwork for the cocaine-contra stuff with Reagan and Bush in the 80s and into the early 90s. And then, you know, they, they draw that path right to uh, Donald Trump, who used all of the techniques that Roger Stone and Roy Cohn learned from Nixon, the, the thing that, that you and I have talked about in past shows called FIS, fear, ignorance, bigotry, and smear. That's how Nixon got elected. That's how Trump was able to steal the election and almost stole the 2020 election. Yeah. And so, you know, that's why I, I just love to try to drag these things out into the light. It's amazing. We'll pick this up. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Lamar Waldron, the author of Watergate, The Hidden History, the definitive book on Nixon, the mafia and the CIA is on the line with us. So Nixon, uh, so Nixon, so Lamar, just to, just to recap, Nixon was mobbed up. He was sponsored by the mafia back in the 50s when he first ran for Congress or in the 40s and 46. Um, right. The mafia was with him throughout his time as vice president. Uh, the mafia was helping him in, in the 1960 election against John Kennedy to try to assassinate Castro because so, he was getting whacked by Kennedy for letting Cuba go communist. Um, he, the mafia, uh, Traficanti and Marcello specifically, were importing heroin into Vietnam and, and, the, and giving cash, literally monthly suitcases full of cash to Richard Nixon in the White House. Um, and Nixon and, 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 and Nixon, uh, you know, is using the Southern strategy, racism and all this stuff. Um, how does how does this relate to today to the Donald Trump strategy? It, it seems like a lot of these same people who were involved in trying to execute Castro in the sick in the 1960s for Nixon's election and then uh, later became part of George Herbert Walker Bush and Ronald Reagan's Iran-Contra scandals are now popping up around Donald Trump. I mean, what's what's going on here? What's the connection between these things? We have about two minutes. Well, and, and remember, there were literally people who were involved in or accused of being involved with Iran-Contra. I mean, Elliot Abrams and, and others who, who, you know, Trump was dragging these people back into government after, you know, decent people had said they shouldn't be involved in government anymore. And, and, and again, it does boil down to that strategy, fear, ignorance, bigotry, and smear that started out in the, in the late 40s. I mean, that's what Nixon used. That's what Joe McCarthy used. By the way, Joe McCarthy... Uh, 
there was a lot. There was another big heroin kind of surge in the mid '50s, thanks to Nixon, you know, and, and the mafia there. Uh, Joe McCarthy, by the way, was a morphine addict, according to the head of the Bureau of Narcotics at the time. So again, just the incredible ironies there. And and I can I can I can tell you one other bit of news that I haven't said anywhere else. F. Lee Bailey recently died, the, the famous... We attorney. had dinner with him a, uh, a couple of years ago, Louise and I. I her father knew, knew him. Her father prosecuted his client, and they became friends. Interesting. So <laughs> F. Lee Bailey was making regular... F. Lee Bailey represented one of the Watergate burglars, James McCord. F. Lee Bailey was making regular payphone calls to Santo Traficante... Oh my God! Reporting on the progress of the Watergate trials, but Effie Bailey was also on retainer by the CIA. So, in other words, it's those CIA mafia plots, and and Effie Bailey kept that secret. And I just kind of hint about that in the book. By the way, if, if you're, if you're hey, Lamar, I'm sorry, we're 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 off the air. We're out of time. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 